So I have to start this morning with a confession, uh, and it's a pretty ugly one. Uh, I, I don't know if you're this way. I just discovered there are a lot of people who put pastors on pedestals, and I just want you to know how dangerous that is, because the moment you put us on a pedestal, you prepare us to fall off and cause catastrophic damage. So I'm going to go ahead and kick myself off the pedestal uh, this morning, expose something to you that you may already know, uh, but maybe you don't. And it says, sometimes I can be a colossal jerk. I just, I just, can you confess that in church? Is that okay? I'm going to go ahead and do it. Um, I can be a jerk sometimes. And uh, I asked my wife not to amen that. Um, <laughs> but it's true, and she knows it better than anybody. And, and it, it really comes down to whether I'm feeling selfish or not. Like anytime I feel selfish, I just become a jerk. I just turn into a jerk because I'm worried about myself and not the other person. The, probably the best time I see it, or the worst time that I see it, is the difference between how my wife treats me when I'm not feeling well compared to how I treat her when she's not feeling well. It is incredibly different. So maybe you don't know this about me. I rarely get sick. Very, very infrequently do I get sick. Um, maybe once a year, every once in a while, once every couple of years. Uh, I just kind of keep going, but uh, I do hit walls every once in a while. A lot of travel, maybe I'm not sleeping well, a lot of work, I get tired, and when I hit a wall, it's just end of the day, my head is pounding, I lose all energy, and I just have to go home and go to sleep. Usually I have to sleep like 12 to 14 hours straight to recuperate, and then the next morning I'm fine. But when I hit these walls, I don't want to eat, I don't want to talk, I just want to go to sleep. Some of you are about to do that right now in the middle of the sermon. You've hit the wall, you're going to sleep right through it. God's grace be upon you. But when I hit those walls and I get home, my wife can see it immediately in my eyes and I'll just say, baby, I, I got to go to sleep. And she just turns into Mother Teresa like that. She just comes around me. Oh, baby, I'm so sorry. Here, come and help. And I, got, I won't change out of my clothes. I kick off my shoes and flop into bed. And she'll get the fan on. She'll close the blinds. She'll make sure everything's quiet, bring me some medicine to take. And she's just watching over me, making sure the kids are quiet. And the whole time she's like, baby, it's okay. I got, cause I feel bad. I feel guilty. I know what all she's been doing all day long. And now I'm going to make her finish everything up. But she's so gracious. I mean, it's really, it, it's really frustrating sometimes how gracious she is, because there's no way I can compare to it. But she'll let me sleep it off and never make me feel guilty about it. And then I compare that to how I respond when she's not feeling well. I got to see a really ugly glimpse of it about a month and a half ago. Uh, so I'd had a hard day. I didn't hit a wall, but I had a tough day, a lot of meetings, just a lot of things to think through, a lot of hard things I'm dealing with. And I got home, it was about 6.15, 6.30, and I'm tired, and I come in, and I, and I know Virginia's been cooking, getting everything ready, and the food's on the table, and I walk in, and I look at my wife, and she looks like, I mean, she's always beautiful, but she looked like death warmed over in that particular moment. Like she looked horrible. Not, I mean, she's beautiful, but she, she looked like she was hurting. And, and I, I, I could tell something was wrong. Uh, later that night, I went to the store and got a COVID test and came back and realized that she had COVID. And she's like cooking her dinner, like just COVID everywhere. Some miracle, no one else got it it's by the move of God. But she was feeling terrible. And so she looks at me when I walk in and says, baby, I, I feel so bad. I, I need to go lay down in the bedroom. Now you would think that in that moment, I would go, oh, baby, Here's my chance to serve you. Here's my chance to take care of my wife who always serves me. She's already laughing right now because she knows. <laughs> Instead of saying, how can I serve you and love you, do you want to know what I said to my wife? I went, ugh. 
That is literally what I said to my wife. And do you know what she felt in that moment? Guilt. Tremendous guilt. Like, now I feel like death, and I got a heaping of guilt put upon me when I go to the back bedroom. Because all I could do in that moment was think about me. I come home, I'm tired, and now I'm calculating in my head what I have to do. Now I've got to make sure all the kids eat because when you've got a big old family, there's going to be war taking place at the dinner table every night. I've got to keep peace in there. Then I've got to clean up everything. Then I've got to go bathe the younger two. Then I've got to go make lunches for the next day. Then I've got to go upstairs and brush their teeth, put them to bed, do the whole ritual, come downstairs, clean everything up, take the dog outside, and all I'm doing is processing all that I've got to do when I'm already tired. And I go, ugh. That's a jerk, people. I'm a jerk. And I know it. And I see it in those moments when all I can think about is me. You want to know why my wife is so compassionate? All she can think about is me. You want to know why I'm such a jerk? All I can think about is me. Like her ability to look at my needs and consider my needs as more important than hers make her live a selflessly compassionate life. And here I am going, yeah, but what about me? What about how I feel? And it makes me a jerk. It's one of the things, honestly, if if I'm just being real with you, I most hate about myself. I see it. I look in the mirror and I see a jerk looking back at me and I hate it. So if I've ever been on any kind of pedestal, go ahead and just kick me off right now. Because your pastor is a jerk. Half of you going, we already knew that, Jason. But for those of you who didn't, you need to know. But let me go ahead and do something right now. I'm going to take the spotlight off myself. I'm going to put it out on you. And I'm going to ask you the question. When you look in a mirror, what do you see? Praise God. (laughs) At least one honest man in this room right now. I, I really want you to wrestle with that question because I think there are some of you who are deceiving yourselves. You go, no, no, but I I do selfless things. I mean, I'm kind, and I try to help people out. I wouldn't go, to my wife if she came home sick. I really want you to wrestle with this. Like, when you tend to have an issue, who do you think about more, yourself or the other person? Are you self-focused or other person-focused? Or maybe even those of you who go, no, man, I'm always serving other people. I'm always helping other people. Really ask yourself why you do it. Because I think there are many of you who are going to discover the reason you do it is because you want people to like you. Because you want them to be there for you when you have trouble. And it's really about you. The scriptures tell us that oftentimes our good works are like filthy rags before God. There's still dirty motivation to them. I think if we were honest, there are a lot of us who would recognize that there's selfishness staring right back at us. This is what it means to be human, by the way. To be human is to be selfish. To be selfish is to be human. Any of you who are parents know this. You don't have to teach your children to be selfish they innately know how. First three words are mama, dada, mine. Because this is how we're wired. And the rest of life is, is honestly just learning how to cope with it to make it not look like we're selfish when we're still really selfish. We're, we're broken people. This is the way of the world. We're just flowing with the river of life if we choose to be selfish like the rest of the world. But let me go ahead and tell you, though the world may be selfish, our God is not. And he says, do not walk with the way of the world. Walk in my ways. You be selfless, though everyone else around you may be selfish. And today, God wants to teach us what that looks like. And we're going to learn it in a really weird passage with a bunch of rules and regulations going back to Exodus. Open your Bibles. Exodus 22. 
We're going to read the, the second half of Exodus 22. We're going to start in verse 16 and then cover the first half of chapter 23. Now, while you're finding the Bible, let me go ahead and tell you, Exodus 22 and 23, what's going to go on here? There are a bunch of these weird rules and regulations. We're just working our way through the book of Exodus, and we're, we're almost done. We've just got a few more weeks of this. But you're going to learn some things about how you treat others and how you treat God. And in fact, in, the, in these two chapters, they're interwoven. There are some verses that talk about how you treat your fellow man or woman, and then it'll move right over to talk about how you treat God, and then back to your fellow man or woman, and then back to God. And they're interwoven for a reason. This is what Jesus said. All of this, this faith thing is boiled down to love God, love others. So they're supposed to be interwoven. But for the sake of application, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pull out the ones that talk about how you treat the other person this week. And then next week, we're going to look at how we treat God. And so we're going to jump around a little bit to really focus in on the portion that focuses on otherness. And, and next week, we'll pick up every single verse. We won't skip a single verse. We're just going to look at them a little bit differently. We're going to start in verse 16, picking off where we left off last week. We'll look at the first two verses here and see how they deal with this selfish tendency in humanity. Exodus 22, verse 16. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. Now, it's, it's a little bit confusing if you don't know ancient culture. So really, just boiling this down, what this passage is teaching, these two verses is that God does not let a man be selfish and do things for selfish pleasure. So this, when it says a man seduces a woman, this is referring to a consensual act. It's a man who woos a woman and they decide to sleep together, but they're not yet married. And in so doing, this man has taken something from the woman for personal pleasure. It's selfish. I want her, I desire her, I take her for myself. And God says, you do not get to do that to a woman and take from her what does not belong to you when you're not married just because you want to, just because of your selfishness. And therefore, if you're going to be with that woman, you're going to take all of her, and you're going to live your whole life for her. You're going to care for her. You're going to think about her, not yourself. You will marry her. And if the father refuses for you to do that, then you have to pay the full bride price because you have taken something from her she can never get back, and you don't get to be that selfish man. You're going to have to pay the full bride price for her because she deserves to be taken care of. So at the end of the day, these two verses are just talking about men who are selfish, and God says, I don't let you be selfish. Selfishness is not the way of God's people. Now, we're gonna keep moving on. We're gonna skip over verses 18 through 20, because this deals about with false worship. We'll talk about that next week. And we're gonna pick back up in verse 21. Let's keep reading. It says, you should not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with a sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. Okay, let's go ahead and pause right there. That's some scary stuff. Almighty God saying, I'm going to come after you, and I'm going to kill you. Listen, God's batting a thousand. If he's going to kill you, you're going to die. That's a scary thing. And God is saying, I want you to be afraid of this and know my wrath will come against you if you mistreat three groups, sojourner, widow, orphan. These three are the most vulnerable in society. The ones that selfish men would prey upon for selfish gain. They would have selfish ambition. They wanted to create a business so they would enslave these people, bring them in, or they wanted to make money off prostitution and they would enslave these people, make them prostitutes so they could get money for themselves. The, the sojourner, this was an immigrant. 
This was the person who had come among the nation of Israel, and they were vulnerable because they didn't speak the language, they didn't know the culture, they didn't have anyone to fight on their behalf. And God says, you know what it feels like to be vulnerable. Don't you dare prey upon these vulnerable immigrants. Care for them. He says, widows and orphans. In that culture, you needed a man to take care of you. It had to be a father, a husband, or a son. And so if you were a widow or an orphan, you didn't have anybody to watch over you, and you were incredibly vulnerable. Evil men would oppress you for selfish gain and enslave you or use you for their purposes. And God says, if anyone tries to do that with the vulnerable people in my society, I will kill them. I do not let you be selfish. This whole thing is just an attack on the selfish nature of humanity. We're going to keep on moving on. We're just going to say one last category. The working poor, don't you dare oppress them. Verse 25 says this. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor... You shall not be like a moneylender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall not return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. So another example about the poor. The poor were, were very vulnerable to people who would exact incredibly high interest rates upon them and indebt them to what they owed and ultimately enslave them. By the way, that's still happening today. There are, there are payday loans places all around here. And the working poor go to them because they don't have enough money to make it. And they get a payday loan with exorbitant interest rates. And they get enslaved to the debt they own. That's actually the purpose of it. And God says, how dare my people ever do that to somebody else? To prey upon the vulnerability of the poor. Even goes as far as saying the cloak. The cloak was what a person slept in at night. They would wrap themselves in it. And God says, if any of you take advantage of a poor person, take away what he needs for sustenance, I will come against you. My anger will burn against you. You give it back to them. You look out for their interests above your own. Doesn't matter what they owe you, you take care of them. Why? God says, because I am compassionate. Now, I want to zero down on that real quickly. Anytime in the Bible you hear, I am, and then there's a word, and it's coming from God, you should lean in and listen. Because God is telling you who he is. He's given you a description of himself. And of all the ways that God could be known, he's victorious, he's eternal, he's omnipotent, omniscient, all these huge things, one of the main ways he wants to be known by us is compassionate. He says, I am compassionate. I actually really like that English translation of that word, compassionate. It's two Latin words put together, com, which means with, and passio, which means suffering. If you think about the passion of Christ, that means the suffering of Christ. That's why they call it Passion Week oftentimes, that week leading up to the death of Jesus. It was the week of Jesus' suffering. So compassio means suffering with somebody else. That's what genuine compassion is. And this is saying, God himself is saying, I suffer with you. I'm above you. I don't actually hurt like you do, but I choose to come down to you and suffer with you. Inherent in this idea of compassion is selflessness. I'm feeling what you feel. I'm concerned about you and your suffering more than I am me in my suffering. This is what makes my wife able to care for me when I'm sick. She suffers with me. She hurts for me. I mean, she, that, that girl will weep at a, uh, at a credit card commercial if it's good enough. She'll weep because she just suffers. If you tell her anything is going on, she often says this. She says, I have the gift of weeping. She does. She, she will weep with you and hurt with you and mourn with you. She suffers with, 
If you want to know who the godlier person is in our relationship, <laughs> it's not that hard because I stink at that. I, I, I'm not compassionate. I wish I was. And God is saying, be like me. Be compassionate. Suffer with others. This is God saying, I am utterly selfless. I'm concerned about you way more than I am myself. And God says, as I am compassionate, be compassionate. This whole passage is about saying, I, I want my people to serve the people who will never be able to give back to them. Widows and orphans and sojourners and the working poor, they can't pay it back. You don't do it to get a reward from them. You do it to consider others more important than yourself, to imitate the compassion of God. Now listen, this is so easy in a sermon to hear about compassion, to golf clap the Lord and go, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. Compassion is one of the hardest things in the world to actually live out because it attacks the very fiber of who you, who you and I are made of, this selfishness that we have, this evil, deceptive heart we have. And in fact, in the next few verses we're going to look at, it's going to show us just how hard compassion really is. We're going to skip over a few verses, 28 to 31, because that's going to cover next week. It deals with how we give God our best. But we're going to pick back in chapter 23, and we're going to finish up the passage in verses 1 through 11. And I want you to see what compassion looks like lived out, selflessness looks like lived out in everyday life in Israel. Chapter 23, picking up in verse 1. It says, you shall not spread a false witness or false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear, uh, bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey or one who hates you lying down under his burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due the, your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and are, do not kill the innocent and are righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Okay, I'm going to stop there. There's a lot of little bitty commands right here, but they're just trying to prove the same point. He says at the beginning, don't you do anything to mar the testimony, give false witness, side with the many, don't receive a bribe, don't do anything that would benefit yourself personally. He even says, don't side with the poor just because they're poor. Don't, don't mar justice thinking you're going to get some benefit from God because you did that. Don't do anything for selfish gain. Don't mistreat the sojourner just to get selfish gain for yourself. He even moves on in verses 10 and 11 to say, even with your land that you get your profit from on the seventh year, let it lie fallow. And here's why. There are poor people who are among you and they need something to eat. And that way they can come get and you're going, but I can make profit. And he says, I know, but I want you to give up your profit to care for those who can never give back to you. The whole thing is about being selfless. A lot of different rules, but if I'm being honest with you, the real test of whether your heart is selfish or selfless came in verses four and five. This was the crux. This is a litmus test to see what's really inside your heart. I want you to go back and look back at verses four and five of chapter 23. Listen to what it says. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. 
If you see the donkey of the one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. What this is saying right here is if you want to know whether you can be selfless or not, don't ask how do you treat your friends and your family. Ask how you treat your foe. That'll show what's really in your heart. Because you cannot do anything kind for your enemy unless you do it from a selfless motivation. And every bit of your selfishness will say, I want to delight in their downfall, not help them. I want you to think about the scenario. It's really an interesting picture that he portrays. So you you got to put yourself in an ancient world for a moment. So let's just say you grew up in the town of Nazareth, where Jesus is from, in ancient Israel. It's summertime, and there's this guy in town. We'll give him the name Samuel, because that's a good Jewish name. And, And you just hate Samuel's guts. I mean, he's just a punk. You grew up with Samuel there in Nazareth, and he's been a punk his whole life. You all have always been at odds with each other. And there was this girl that you grew up with that you wanted to marry so bad, you were saving up money to pay the bride price. But Samuel's dad had more money than your dad, and so he was able to pay more, and he got to marry the girl. And he did it just to spite you, stinking Samuel. You hate his guts. And then there was another time later on when Samuel took you to court at the city gate because he said you moved the boundary line of his land. You know you didn't do that, but he's trying to make you look bad. He's trying to get from you because he's a punk. And then there was this one time when Samuel, he publicly accused you in the town center of stealing one of his animals. And he knew you didn't do it. You knew he didn't, you didn't do it, but he's trying to get you because he hates you and you hate him. He's your enemy. And so it's this summer day. It's early August in the middle of Nazareth. It's just hot as blazes, 105 degrees outside. And you're walking by and you hear this donkey heeing and hawing on the side. And you walk up right there in the middle of the road and there's Samuel. And there's this donkey sitting on the ground under this big old burden. And Samuel's trying to get the donkey up, but the donkey won't move. And you're just laughing your little head off. And right now you're going, that is sweet justice right there. And you get your phone out to take a picture and post on Instagram, hashtag sweet justice, and you just walk off as you're going, God finally brought vengeance upon that sorry dog. And as you're walking off, God says, no, no, no. I want you to go back to Samuel, and I want you to help him lift that donkey. And you go, God, he stole my woman. God, he, he accused me of stealing his land, of taking his animal. He's been a liar and a cheater. He's my enemy, God. And God says, I know. And I want you to go over there and I want you to help him lift up his donkey so he can go on his way. What you do in that moment shows you what's really in your heart. Do you delight in his downfall or do you go help your enemy? Now, some of you are going, I, you know, I don't know. I'd probably help him out. And the reason you would say that is because you don't really feel the weight of it. It's just too foreign of an illustration. I'm going to bring it up today. How many of you in this room have ever worked for a boss? Go ahead and raise your hand if you've ever worked for a boss. All right, I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand because you may be working for somebody in this room, but how many of you have ever had a really difficult, ungodly, jerky boss? Don't raise your hand. But I'll bet you, I'll bet you that many of you, one guy just raised both his hands over here. That's just wrong. And he works on staff at Field. No, I'm just kidding. That's That's not what happened. But I want you just to imagine that you have this boss that you work for, and he is the definition of jerk. You go to the dictionary and it says jerk. There's his picture right there beside the term jerk. He is just, he is so demanding. He always takes credit for what you've done for himself. 
He's de- he always demeans you. He tells you you're never doing a good enough job. You, you, you are suffering from real trauma from the way that he's treated you. And one day he gets called into his boss because something's failing. It's really his fault, but he needs a scapegoat. So he blames you and he fires you. And now here you are, off, out of work, suffering because of this jerk of a boss. And here he is in his Armani suit with his little Porsches living the good life. And you hate the guy completely. He is a jerk. He is your enemy if ever there was an enemy. And you're driving down Pioneer Parkway, some middle of the day. It's August, 108 degrees outside. And you look over and you see this Porsche broken down right there in the middle of the road. And you see this guy in an Armani suit out there trying to push his car by himself. It's not going anywhere. And you realize it's that jerk of a boss. And finally, he's getting what he deserves from God. And you're driving by and you got to ask yourself, what do I do? Because I can guarantee you the majority of you, I know what you would do. Same thing I would do. (laughs) Ha ha, yes. That sorry dog is finally getting away. You might even swerve close to him. Just scare him a little bit. And you go past him and God says, don't you dare. You turn around and you go back and you get out of your car and you help him push his Porsche over to the other side. And you go, God, he's the one who got me fired. He's the one who lied about me. He was the jerk. He's just getting what he deserves. And God says, I don't care. I want you to go back over there. It's 105, God. I've got, I got to go to work. I'm supposed to go to church to pray tonight, God. I don't have time to stop. <laughs> and God says, I want you to go back around. I want you to get out of that car, and I want you to help him push. I want you to love your enemy. I want you to be compassionate towards your enemy. Why? Because I'm compassionate toward my enemies, God says. You see, how you respond in that moment will show you one of two things. It'll show you the condition of your heart, because you cannot be selfish or selfless towards your enemy unless your heart has infinite supernatural power. It'll tell you the real condition of your heart, but it'll also tell you what you really believe about God and what he's done for you. Because you cannot be compassionate with your enemy unless you believe that God has been compassionate towards you, his enemy. See, that's the whole message of the gospel. God says, I am compassionate with you. Therefore, be compassionate. And when he says, be compassionate with with your enemies, he's saying, do so because I have been compassionate with my enemies. And you want to know who God's enemies are? Go ahead and raise your hand, every one of us in this room. We are the enemies of Almighty God. You go, what do you mean? I'm I'm not an enemy of God. Well, let me remind you what the Word of God says. Book of James, if you go read it, it says, anybody who becomes a friend of the world makes themselves an enemy of God. Let me tell you, the world's value system, watch out for yourself, live for yourself, get all that you can. Me, 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 me. Go ahead and watch some football. Watch the Dallas Cowboys play tonight and look at all the commercials. And every single message they're going to sell you is you need this for you. You need this for you. You need this for you. It's all about self. This is the Guadalupe River going down and we're just sitting in our little inner tube floating around with it. To be selfish is to go with the way of the world. And we all choose to do so. We say to a God who's been nothing but kind and good and generous and loving, you know what, God, I don't actually need you. I got better things to strive for in my life. I got things that will be better for me, make me happy, complete me, fulfill me, satisfy me. So God, you're on your own. We turn our backs on a God who's been nothing but good to us. And when we do so, we make ourselves enemies of Almighty God. And God says, 
I know you're my enemy. I know you've rejected me, but I love my enemy. And if I have to take my son and bring him to earth to die for my enemy, so be it. I, I was watching this little clip. I, I didn't have time to show. It's like a 20-minute clip. But it's this little short film. Uh, I believe it's called The Train. But it's, it's about this moment. There's a, a guy who works uh, at a, a train station, and he controls the tracks. And the whole film is just setting up the story. There's this dad who loves his daughter so much, or his son so much, loves his little boy, about seven or eight years old, and they're just, they're so tight, they're so close, they just embrace each other the whole time. And he brings his son to work to see him, get to see the trains that are going by. And the whole part of the story is you get to see who's on this train. And it's just some terrible people. There are people who are shooting up in the train, people who are who are being unfaithful to their spouse on the train. They're mean, they're cruel, they're ungodly. It's just a whole train filled with broken people. And you see the train, the train leave the station. And there's this dad of this little boy. And this little boy is playing on the tracks. And the, this guy who controls the tracks gets a word that there's a threat on the other side. And if this train continues down the tracks as it's going, every person on that train is going to die. And he has to switch lines in order to divert that train so those people can live. But there's a problem. His son that he brought with him is actually playing down there on the track. And if he switches the track, it's going to crush his son. And you see this father, and he's warring with this decision because here's a train filled with people that he doesn't know that are going to die. But here's his son that he loves, and if he moves the track, his son is going to die, and he can't stand it. And you can feel the weight of it. And you don't see it happen, but you see the train track move. As the father chose to sacrifice his own son for all these people who don't even know. So they could live, and they don't even realize what's taking place. And the whole point of that story is to show us what the father's done for us. Here we are, going on in this track of life. And we're evil, and we're cruel, and we're selfish. And we're going straight to hell. And the father says, they don't know it, but i got to save them. And even if it means I give up my precious child, I'll do it. Because I love my enemies. This is what it means for God to be compassionate. This wasn't easy for the father, but he is utterly selfless. And if he has to give up his own son to save us, the father says, so be it. I want them to live. And he says, as I'm compassionate, I want you to be compassionate. As I am selfless, I want you to be selfless. Listen, this world is chock full of people who are hell-bent on living for themselves. And if they could just see a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, live selflessly, it would be like a spotlight in the middle of darkness, a light so bright people could actually see their way to God. And we have the opportunity to show a dark world the light of God, and we do it when we consider others more important than ourselves. When we look not for our own interests, but for their interests, the world gets to see God. And that's why he says, as I've been compassionate, be compassionate. So here's my question for you. When you look in the mirror, do you see someone looking back at you that is selfless and compassionate or if you're being honest, do you see somebody struggling so deeply with selfishness?
thinking about yourself above everybody else. I really want you to wrestle with that because how you answer this will tell you how you need to respond today. I don't want you just to ask, how do I feel? I want you to do a little harder work. Maybe ask yourself, how do you spend your money? Look at your bank statement. That'll really tell you a lot. Do you spend your money on yourself to get the things that you want, to take the vacation that you want, to buy that, that gadget that you want? Or do you spend it on your friends and family, you keep it inside? Or do you spend it on people who could never pay you back for it? Do you see somebody radically generous who says, I give and I give extravagantly for the people who can never pay me back because I want them to see who my God is? What does your bank, bank statement tell you? Maybe look at how you spend your time. Do you spend your time at work constantly striving to get ahead, to make a career, to make some money? Do you spend it on vacations, time with your family, your kids' ball games? It's always about you and those close to you. Or do you spend your time serving people who can never pay you back? Do you spend your time giving of yourself for the sake of those who need to see the selflessness of a people who are radically different than this world? What does how you spend your time tell you? Or maybe the scariest question of all would be, what does your spouse say about you? If I were to sit your spouse down and, and ask them, interview them, tell me, describe your spouse, what would they say? Or maybe some of you, I should say, what would your parents say about you? Or maybe some of you, what would your children say about you? What would your closest friends say about you? Really, those who know you, what would they say? Because I'm, I'm just afraid there are many of us who would have to admit there's a lot of selfishness inside of us. We do not imitate the Father the way we should. And if we see that, if we're honest and we see it, then one of two things is going on. Either we have a broken heart or we have a broken memory. And both of those need to be fixed. Now, let me start with the first one, broken heart. Here's what you need to know. The only way you can be selfless is if your heart is restored. Because right now you have a broken heart. And I don't mean you're sad. I mean you, you do not have the capacity to live according to God's ways. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. No one can even understand it. We are selfish because our hearts are broken and selfish. And the only way we could ever be selfless, to love our enemy as ourself, would be if God takes out our heart of stone and puts in a brand new heart. And that's the very message of the gospel. Book of Hebrews, Jeremiah 23, both of them say the same thing. When you trust in Christ, he takes out your heart of stone. He gives you a new heart that can actually be selfless. So one of the reasons why you, you always seem to hurt the people around you, always seem to go back into this insular, self-focused way is because your heart is broken and nothing will change until you say, oh God, heal me. My heart, God, is broken. I'm the enemy. I'm the sinner. I'm the selfish one. God, forgive me. Take over my life. Give me a new heart. I want to live for you. That's the moment of decision. But when you trust in Christ, he can change you. I believe there are some of you this morning, you're tired of being selfish. You're tired of living in this broken state. You want to imitate Christ. You want to be changed. There's a reset button of faith. That's, that's why we have a baptistry on the stage. This baptistry is a moment for you to say, today I choose to be a different person. I want the old selfish me to die as you go into the water. I want a brand new me to come out that has a heart beating with Almighty God by his work, not my own, the miracle of God. If you need that today, I'm going to give you a chance to come forward and respond to it. But I'm going to give you just a moment. Two more things I want to say very quickly. I also know there are many of you, as you heard from Pastor Jared, there are over 300 people already this year alone 
who've given their faith to Jesus Christ over the last 12 months. That's, that's many of you in this room. There are many of you who've been baptized already, declared your faith in Christ. You're a believer in Jesus, but you've got to confess that far too often you look in the mirror, you see someone selfish looking back at you. And the reason why isn't because you haven't been redeemed, it's because you've forgotten the gospel. You've forgotten the compassion of God. You have to look at all that God has done for you to be able to live out the compassion of Almighty God. So we're going to sing a song in just a moment. It's called How Deep the Father's Love. And the whole message of this song is to look at what God has done for us. That he let his own son die for us when we didn't deserve it. It was our sin that put Jesus on the cross. We have to accept it. Listen, there's always a danger of singing a song mindlessly. Don't you dare do that. When you sing, let the word sweep over you. Remember the gospel. Let it change you. I'm going to give you a chance in a moment to do that. But one last thing I want to say. The reason that we trust God is because he's a compassionate God. He suffers with us. And if you're here this morning and you have some need, some weight, some burden, I'm going to invite you to trust in the compassion of God. He suffers with you. He hurts with you. He wants to hear your need. And there's a beautiful symbol of your trust that God is compassionate. And that symbol is to come forward and let somebody pray with you or to come forward and bow down at these steps saying, God, I need you. It is one thing to say, God, I believe your compassion. It's another thing to show it by saying, God, I believe you feel this need of mine. I want to bring it to you because I believe you alone can do something about it. And so we're going to have a time of prayer. If you need to experience the compassion of God, I'm going to encourage you to come. I invite you all to stand right now. If you're one of the prayer partners who's going to pray over people or some of the staff, I invite you to come forward and spread out down front. If you just need to sing the song, sing about God's goodness. If you need to come show your belief in the compassion of God and receive prayer, come. If you need to come believe that your God is so compassionate, there is no sin he cannot overcome. You come trust in the compassion of God. Come receive his forgiveness and his salvation. Let him give you a new heart. You got to come. I invite you to respond however you need to.